good morning uh, or good afternoon i should say everyone uh, thank you for joining us for the defiant weekly recap as always we are here with most of the defiant printing uh, we have alex and owen staff reporters uh, here uh, where we see trader uh, our head of news and myself um the founder uh, of the defiant uh, and we will review all the major headlines that happened throughout the week. Um, some of the biggest talking points that we'll go over is uh, the CFTC goes against CZ and Binance, the biggest crypto exchange. Um, there's news on staked ETH. Withdrawals will be uh, available and live in two weeks. Um, so exciting for the Ethereum community. There were <clears throat> CK EVMs that were on fire this week with at least, I think, three different launches. So this is um, this uh, competing flavor of roll-up scaling technology. Uh, the Euler attack hacker continued returning funds. Um, and we had a few great features by our reporters, one on uh, uh, DAO and uh, governance uh, token legal risk. Um, another one on how uh, uh, smaller projects uh, were using the Arbitrum airdrop. Um, so yeah, lots, lots happening uh, this week. Um, and before we get to it, uh, I want to thank our sponsor for this week's uh, weekly recap, uh, Arch. Um, so, uh, Further ahead in the video, we'll show you how you can securely borrow against your crypto assets with Arch. So thanks again for uh, sponsoring the video and a shout out to uh, potential sponsors out there. Uh, you know, head, uh, give us a, a drop us a, an email or a message if you're uh, looking to get your message out there uh, together with us. So um, let's head to our biggest topic of the week, uh, CFTC, uh, SUS, Binance, and CZ. Alex, you covered the story, covered the market reaction, um, which was surprising, surprisingly muted. So uh, if you want to walk us through what happened. Yeah. Um, you know, you'd think that there would be more, um, I guess, more of a splash in the market after a U.S. regulator goes after the biggest crypto exchange in the world. I saw an estimate this morning, actually, that uh, Binance handled 90% of crypto spot transactions in 2022. So it's like, you know, um, Binance is the crypto world's equivalent of too big to fail. Um, but the, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission in the US, so that's one of the financial regulators. The other big one is the Securities and Exchange Commission. You've been hearing more about that one this year, but the CFTC uh, on Monday sued Binance, sued its founder, Chengpeng Zhao, CZ, as everybody knows him, a uh, former Binance executive, uh, a guy who used to be the chief compliance officer. Um, and it, in a nutshell, the CFTC alleged that Binance was um, basically that Binance was allowing Americans to use its platform. So um, there are certain like trading platforms that retail investors in the US aren't allowed to use. 
uh, ones that offer risky derivatives. You know, uh, if you were an American and you used FTX, it was likely FTX's US arm. The reason being that FTX International, like Binance, uh, would offer more exotic, riskier uh, trading strategies to its customers. And in the US, if you're retail, you're kind of limited to regular spot trading, right? So um, US customers aren't supposed to be using Binance International. The CFTC is alleging that uh, almost one fifth of Binance's trade revenue actually came in years past from Americans, that Binance knew Americans were using its platform. And not only did it know that they were using its platform, but it kept its onboarding process intentionally lax so that it wouldn't cut off that flow of American dollars, that it even encouraged Americans that it knew shouldn't be using its platform to do so, that it gave them uh, it gave certain VIP customers bespoke advice on how to evade its onboarding checks that it put out, um, you know, kind of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge guides on its website about how you might be able to access foreign websites like Binance.com uh, using stuff like a VPN, right? So that's that's the heart of, of the CFTC's lawsuit. There are other things that it alleges in there. It has a bit about um, Binance trading accounts. Some people saw that in the lawsuit and took that to mean that Binance was trading against its own customers, something that it's vehemently denied. Um, allegations that Binance not only knew Americans were using its platform, but that <laughs> like Hamas, uh, you know, considered a terrorist organization by the U.S. government, uh, may have also used its platform. And for that reason, a couple of legal analysts think that, okay, the CFTC lawsuit came out, uh, the allegations doesn't look great, but it's not super, super nefarious the way the FTX allegations are. But uh, they think that these might be followed by criminal prosecution from the U.S. Department of Justice or something of that nature, right? So anyway, all that's to say the initial allegations, uh, they're serious, but but it seems like the markets understand it's not that serious, right? So the um, looking at on-chain data, the amount of uh, money flowing out of Binance, the centralized exchange has been kind of muted. It's only been about like one or $2 billion since the lawsuit dropped, which sounds like a lot of money, but Binance has like 70 billion uh, uh, sitting in cold storage, if I'm not mistaken, right? So it's like, like one or 2% of the of the actual assets that Binance holds on hand and actually outflows from Binance have been way higher, uh, even just this month for, for, for different reasons, right? So people aren't fleeing the platform because they're nervous about this lawsuit. Uh, they aren't even really fleeing BNB, the blockchain that Binance built, um, according to DeFi Llama, which tracks the cumulative amount of crypto in applications on BNB, um, it's fallen this week. But you know the the amount of crypto locked in just about every blockchain has fallen this week. BNBs has fallen maybe a little bit more, but you know not enough to indicate any kind of uh, run to safety. 
the only real sense in which Binance took a, a, a hit that that's really, I guess, uh, deeper than than other cryptos has been the actual BNB token, which powers the BNB blockchain. Uh, last I checked, that's fallen like over this past week, four or five percent, which is a lot steeper than other top 10 tokens. Yeah, but as we see here, it's still um, higher than it was just, you know, 30 days ago. So you see there right, right. Uh, when the news broke, yeah, there was a, a big leg down. It's been recovering since, um, but the decline wasn't uh, so steep as to even reverse, you know, the past 30 day uh, gains. So, yeah, yeah I, I, I also thought it was interesting that, you know, yeah, sure that the, there was some reaction in the market, the token fell. Um, there were some outflows to the centralized exchange and to the, uh, to the like Binance uh, smart chains, uh, smart contracts, uh, blockchain, uh, BNB chain, but it wasn't anything um, huge, like it wasn't. And uh, something that would indicate that uh, most people are uh, fleeing uh, Binance and Binance-related products. No, I mean, people saw the news. Flee, right? banking, I said, where do you flee? If the banking system's collapsing, who do you trust more? JP sure. Morgan or CZ? <laughs> <laughs> the <It's> tough like... <laughs> call. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm trying to um, think how... Did, did coin, Coinbase's coin uh stock did that drop uh that dropped like a rock when when coinbase got the wells notice right True. yeah 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 Yeah. well i mean it because we don't know exactly what the sec so that so in that case the sec was saying that it intends to sue coinbase it hasn't actually sued them yet the way the cftc did with binance but mm -hmm. what coinbase thinks it's going to get sued over is more existential than yeah. what Binance is facing, right? Binance is just like, oh, you let some people who weren't supposed to use Binance use Binance. The CFTC mm -hmm. is supposedly going to sue Coinbase saying something to the effect of a lot of the tokens on your platform are unregistered securities, which kind yeah. of gets to the very like question of like, what yeah. does the American legal system think crypto is, you know, how like, yeah. How, how strict is the scrutiny of, of, of these assets going to be? Um, yeah. And that's that, that's more fundamental. Um, that makes sense. It kind of gets yeah. a Coinbase's entire business model. Yeah, I mean, it make, like the Binance thing, it's like it could almost just be like some streaming service at, that, you know, people weren't supposed to access. I mean, at a very high level, it could just be like, oh, you weren't, you used a VPN to like whatever, watch like a... I don't know, an Indonesian television show or something um, <laughs> that you weren't supposed to. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I think like to, to me, what was super interesting about this case was seeing how all the, or, or I, I, at least a lot of the communications inside of Binance were leaked. Mm. Um, so, I mean, just like th this is a, a a side note but they were supposed to be talking on signal and they were still leaked so that makes me question like how safe are those it, it makes me question 
whether I have to go back and delete all right. of my signal. I convinced all of my friends to use it. <laughs> what, was, what was crazy was that um, in some instances, CC was like, or or actually the, 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 the documents said, uh, CC said in, in a, a message that was set to auto delete. So mm -hmm. it was like, how did they get these messages? But in, in any case, that's a kind of side note to like the actual content of what, what was being said. Yeah. And it, it was just crazy how um, just uh, how just purposely they were trying to skirt US uh, regulations. It was just like very blatant. If th those yeah. messages are true and allegations are true, etc. But they were basically saying, you know, we, you guys need to find a way to get the whales in the U.S. to trade on the platform. Like, uh, tell them to use a VPN, uh, whatever. Like, it was just very, uh, they were clearly doing this, according to those messages. Right, um, according to those messages. Stuff to the effect of americans are using our platform they shouldn't be but cz wants them here because we make yeah. a lot of money from it so make sure that like you know give them the it white happens. glove treatment you know someone had trouble accessing our website they're a big customer can you help them evade our you know weak or our, our, our purposefully weak kyc uh yeah onboarding process that, that it's, just, it's, like, i mean it's that blatant it's yeah. <laughs> It seems uh, like very unprofessional, um, but it, it it's also just a business decision in the end. I think it came down to, you know, CC saw the risk of getting caught doing this, but he also saw the profits of allowing U.S. traders to use the to use Binance, and he said, you know, he he decided to take that risk and and pay the fine if if the, if there was a fine or uh, go through the 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 legal a process if, if there was one um yeah i mean it, it was just a, a very kind of you know gets at the very like you know soft touch regulation that a lot of financial companies in this country face right like financial firms traditional financial firms get multi-million dollar fines it seems like every other year and mm -hmm. they're like eh, that's cool you know yeah we made more money off whatever low level scam the government is just accused us of, we'll pay the fine. You I mean, that you see that it, it's not so different from KYC AML for, for big banks. Like, um, I don't know how, how, how many millions of dollars in fines, like Credit Suisse uh, has paid for like reaching some AML uh, procedure you know they they, right. they do that all the time and and i think it's a business decision just like finance did um because they they decide to go after kind of these profitable business lines if you want to call it um than than not yeah and the lack of price action i mean change maybe suggests that that was almost baked into the market as people kind of broadly maybe knew this already or or didn't you know, I yeah. mean, at least don't perceive it as a huge yes. like, novel um, thing to update their there was, positions There was with. this meme. Let me know. I mean, let me see if I can find it quickly. Uh, it, it was like, okay, here it is. Um, I'll, I'll put it, <laughs> pull it up. But it's like, 
the CFTC says Binance is sketchy and like all of crypto Twitter is like, yeah, we yeah, know. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I mean, there's yeah. the demand side too, right? <clears throat> US traders want access to Binance because you can't access anything good uh, being in the US otherwise. Like you can't use DYDX, you can't use perpetuals on most most platforms. You can't access so many coins that are the, the hot ones that pump a lot, right? So these things get listed on Binance first. Hmm. So, I mean, however tight your geo-blocking is, people who want to get on will find a way. So I don't think, like, obviously, in terms of big clients, yes, they were actively quoting them, or it looks like from the documents. But your small retail guys, I mean, they would have found their own loopholes to trade yeah. anyway. You know what I mean? I don't know, man. Hulu always seems to when I'm, know when I'm using a VPN. Like, really? All, always. It's like you're using a VPN. I thought. I thought the point you're not of this a hacker, that... Alex. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta add a couple layers of spice to that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to download Tor. You're yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyways. Yeah. But why would I say I get your point? Yeah. That 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 obviously there's there's demand. It's not just Binance making this available to people. There are traders, large and small, who are using VPNs and other ways to get on Binance. Yeah. And I think you're right that, you know, people will find a way always. Um, yeah. I mean, you have places like Bybit where you can still open an account with no KYC and trade perpetuals, etc. Right. So like you said, it's a business decision because you can't compete in the bull market uh, unless you offer all kinds of uh, products that people are looking for. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Something that's worth pointing out though, um, and first of all, if it wasn't clear when I was talking earlier, these are all allegations. The fact that the KYC may have been lax, that the uh, executives at Binance knew this. It's just allegations, right? Um, sure. We don't actually know that to be true. Maybe crypto Twitter knows it to be true. We don't know it to be true. But uh, <laughs> almost all of the allegations in the complaint date to 2019, 2020. There, there are a couple things that come after that, um, but you know, reading between the lines, it seems like if if that is in fact the case, that it was much more of an issue, like pre-pandemic, uh, mm. than than it is today at, at Binance. Yeah. So it could be that they really tightened up their KYC in the years since. Totally, they hired a lot of lawyers last year. I think I wrote a story. I remember they like bulked up their law team by significant amount, I think like at least 10 people or something. So yeah, they might've known something was coming and they may have been to your point buckling down since then. Yeah. Worth noting that it was for a period that was, you know, a couple of years ago. Um, and I think, you know, it's worth putting this into the broader context of how we've just seen um, uh, an increase in just regulatory actions against uh, or around uh, crypto in the past couple of months. Um, so, you know, there was the, the Coinbase, um, Wells Notice, there was a, a Kraken, um, uh, which had to take down the, its staked ETH uh, product. Uh, and um, there were, you know, actions against uh, against 
even DAOs, which Alex will talk about now. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it, it comes amid this, this climate of what it seems to be just um, a, a crackdown on the crypto industry broadly uh, in the US. Uh, we've talked about this before. There's a question about whether it's um, a coordinated effort by different US regulators to uh, clamp down on the industry. There were uh, there was um, this headline yesterday about Elizabeth Warren recruiting an army to attack crypto. <laughs> um, that was kind of within this like longer video, but still like she's definitely proud of of that uh, portrayal. So you know you we, we have this climate uh, of um, the U.S. becoming uh, just more. Uh, just I guess the US becoming less crypto friendly. Um so and 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 then that's where kind of the this Binance lawsuit uh, comes in. Um so about this uh risk to DAOs, which is interesting because since kind of the beginning of uh of DeFi and even before then, um because DAOs predate uh, DeFi there was this kind of understanding in crypto that if you were a part of a decentralized autonomous organization, um, there would be uh, less risk um, for regulators to uh, act against your organization because these DAOs uh, live online. They don't, they, they aren't registered usually under a, uh, you know, any jurisdictions, they're not legal entities. There's no they're... CEO. Sometimes like the, the buck doesn't stop with somebody. Yeah, there, there's like the organization is, it's not like you have a structured, uh, you know, corporate, uh, you know, team uh, around it. These uh, team members are usually or many times anonymous. So all of those things were uh, meant to protect those participating in DAOs against any regulatory action. And it was like, you know, the, the decentralized, the better. Uh, that way, we, um, crypto can actually be this alternative financial system without having uh, uh, to comply to regulations in different jurisdictions. But that's come under question uh, recently. And uh, uh, so, BCX was the BCX, which then turned to UkiDAO, was the first example of this of, of a DAO getting um, uh, sued by a U.S. regulator, uh, and and so that sparked a lot of questions in the space. Uh, Alex, you you wrote um, a really interesting story on the implications of this. So, how like do DAOs face regulatory risk? Um, maybe so the, so, so, yeah, so, so B, BZX DAO later became Uki DAO, which a lot of people heard about last fall because the CFTC, uh, sued Uki DAO. If I remember correctly, the allegation was you were offering certain trading products that only registered companies can offer. You should have registered and Uki DAO actually, uh, settled and paid a fine if I recall. But 
this case here is a class action lawsuit or a putative class action lawsuit filed against a BZX, against the entity before it rebranded to UkiDAO or whatever. Um, and kind of like the history of this is BZX, the protocol is a trading uh, a protocol founded by these two guys whose name I don't recall off the top of my head, but they, they've built the protocol and they also formed a, a company, I think it was B Xerox LLC that owned or managed the protocol. And then at some point, a couple of years ago, they transferred ownership of the protocol to the community, to a newly formed DAO. Uh, people who owned BZRX tokens would now collectively be the owners of this protocol, you know, typical DAO stuff, right? Like you've got governance tokens, you get to propose changes to the platform, you get to vote on the proposals. Um, and on a call detailing this transition, one of the co-founders said, well, you know, we're seeing uh, these builders uh, getting slapped with lawsuits and we want to future-proof ourselves. We want to make it so that if a regulator comes to us and you know says you know we're serving you because you violated this whatever that well you know there's nothing we can do because we don't own it anymore kind of everybody owns it it's distributed it's censorship resistant it's not subject to the the, the laws of the land um that plan isn't going super well um the so on on Monday, and okay, uh, more of the history, right? That happened, and then just a couple months later, one of the developers for BZX, the the, the now decentralized BZX, got an email, clicked on an attachment. It turned out there was malware there, and BZX, which existed on three chains: Binance Smart Chain, Polygon, and Ethereum. Um, there were some security measures on Ethereum, so the money there was okay. But like all of the money in the protocol on both uh, Binance Smart Chain and on Polygon was drained by the hacker. It was like a total of $55 million worth of crypto. Uh, so the 19 plaintiffs in this lawsuit that I mentioned, they cumulatively, cumulatively lost like, I think like $1.7 million mm. worth of crypto. But in their lawsuit, they're alleging that the the token holders in bzx dao are general partners as such they're liable for this money lost that they had a duty to the people who the customers the people who were using the platform to keep the crypto safe and they were negligent they they were negligent in upholding that duty as such you know we're suing them for you know, we, like we want our money back, basically. Um, so on Monday, a judge rules that, yes, that's plausible, basically, right? Like the defendants had asked the judge to dismiss the lawsuit saying, we're just members of a DAO. You know, we might have founded the protocol, but, you know, we're just members like anybody else. We don't have any particular responsibility over this protocol. We don't have any custodial like a role in in the platform right uh so judge could you please toss it out the judge says no the allegations seem plausible 
So I'm going to let this move forward. And and the judge gave his implicit uh, kind of blessing to this argument that, yeah, if you owned one of the governance tokens, you're a co-owner of this business and you're not protected from any liability that the business might incur. So that means that any any token holder or like any, any participant in the BCX DAO is liable. Now, the judge is simply saying that's that's a plausible argument. Mm -hmm. So now I'm going to let the two parties, you know, they're going to have a discovery. They're going to ask each other for records. They're going to argue this in court. That actually hasn't been decided yet and probably won't be for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. But the fact that the judge thinks like, yeah, you know, like that, that kind of makes sense. Um, you know, it now everybody is watching this case to see what that final judgment looks like, right? Because um, spoke to to one attorney who uh, has Dow clients who was basically saying this is terrifying, right? The idea that just owning a governance token could could kind of thrust you into this business classification that, like, I, you know, it's like like you could i could just send somebody a governance token they don't have to on their end accept that transaction right like you mm -hmm. know when when you dust people's wallets and you uh send them tokens that they didn't want in the first place it's like could could you just send somebody a governance token and all of a sudden like poof they're a general partner in a in a business well, well so uh, theory, like if, yeah. if you own like maker tokens um in theory, you could participate in governance just by holding those tokens. Would that make any maker token holder liable if you know MakerDAO gets sued? It it just it seems so crazy. Right, and so like, so like the, it shouldn't be. <laughs> some something that the judge uh, mentions is the fact that while actual participation in governance might be the kind of like the line between are you a general partner or are you not right it's one thing to just passively hold governance tokens it's another to be you know active in the community making proposals voting um and, and that could be the, the the dividing line right but that that's also kind of problematic in its own way right it's like yeah. what's the cutoff point like oh man i voted once a couple of years ago and so now i'm considered like a you know a, a co-ceo of of this random protocol like you know, well, and crypto's had enough problem with people participating in governance. And now, like, you know, if we're going to disincentivize that, I mean, just from a pro crypto governance standpoint, that's not the best. No, no. Right. And, and now one thing that I'll point out is that uh, speaking to attorneys, they did all mention like, OK, the, the, the notion that uh, members of a DAO could be general partners that's not new that's not surprising honestly like that doesn't worry us like yeah you know like, like so w when the sec brings lawsuits against these crypto companies as, as it has this year and says hey we're suing you because uh we've decided that your token whatever it might be is actually an unregistered security and you're breaking the law crypto attorneys will wring their hands and say well, you know, where, where was that rule? You know, you, uh, 
you had never told us that. You're making up rules as you go along, as you file lawsuits. When I spoke to attorneys here, they weren't saying, oh my God, how could, uh, how could this judge think that DAO members are general partners? That's crazy. It's like they were kind of saying, well, you know, like most DAOs are decentralized in name only. They're masquerading as distributed um, uh, businesses when in fact hmm. they're kind of like any other business. You know, there are a few people who really run things. And just because they gave people a token and let them vote in a snapshot poll doesn't actually mean that they're meaningfully decentralized. And it's not outrageous for a court to say, yeah, you guys are actually general partners in this business and you are legally liable when something goes wrong. It's uh, you have a great quote so here. It's like you this this makes that, that point, right? People in the industry conflate decentralization with trustlessness. Just because there are a lot there are lots of members in the DAO, that doesn't mean that the protocol itself is trustless. If one developer can get hacked and the entire protocol was drained on two separate chains, that's pretty indicative that this was not a trustless system. Mm. Yeah, you know, this this is all happening because one dev had his crypto wallet hacked and right. the hacker was then able to take all of the money out. Like if one person who helped build the protocol controls that take much. all the money out yeah, yeah. And, and simply chooses not to, right? That's to me at least, and, and the attorneys to greater and lesser degrees kind of agreed with this, that's decentralization theater. You know, that's right. like, they're not actually meaningfully distributing power and control of the protocol. So this, this lawsuit, it, it's, sorry? I said that's why Chris Black hates multi-sigs, right? Oh, right. It's exactly. four or five, six people who can potentially rug billions of dollars if they want to, or yeah. even against their will. Like, let's say you go to a Polygon conference, right? Most likely, most of the Polygon multi-sig would probably be there, right? Mm -hmm. So potentially some, you know, James Bond-esque operation yeah, yeah. Could be planned and you know take them all and just get a get a white van man yeah. yeah it's all good <laughs> Ocean's Eleven style <laughs> so I guess like the 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 bigger lesson here for uh, for people in DeFi is that it's it's not that uh, DAOs are liable is that fake DAOs are liable like I don't you know it I think the the idea here is that if if your DAO is actually not decentralized and controlled by a handful of devs, that that really is just a traditional uh, company. It's, it's not actually right. a DAO. And and it's one other thing that I'll note here is just that there are obviously kind of like levels to decentralization, right? So. Um, Eric Dylas, one of the attorneys that I was talking to, is you know saying, well, are you when this DAO, the governance tokens, when people vote, is this vote on chain? Do the proposed changes self-execute such that when the DAO speaks, you know, the the thing they voted on just happens? Or is it more like the tokens let you participate in a poll and then the outcome of that poll directs 
you know, some multi-sig, you know, just like a couple people to then execute the proposed change on the DAO's behalf, because that's less decentralized, yeah. right? Yeah. Or is it just like, oh, I get to chat in a governance forum and make my voice heard. And it's really, there's just one person who has the keys to the whole contract or whatever. Um, so it's like, you know, it's, it, it makes me think about how when Arbitrum announced its token drop and how it was handing control of the blockchain off to a new Arbitrum DAO, uh, they they really talked up the fact that DAO votes there would be self-executing. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, one thing yeah. to consider for people creating these distributed communities. Yeah. 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 And before we move on to the next uh, story, I just want to go down memory lane for a little bit because I... I was remembering that um, BCX was the first. It was uh, the first kind of major hack. I mean, a hack to to BCX was the ma first major hack that happened in DeFi, um, and I covered it on the DeFi newsletter when it was just myself, like just me writing it every day. <laughs> so. Here's the ARPS exploit DeFi to make 900,000 in seconds, which seems like such a small hack by these days standards. But back then, it was the biggest hack ever uh, in DeFi. Um, and it was just like such a big deal. And I made this whole diagram on like how the hack had actually happened. <laughs> it's just like with it was like a flash loan and like all these like complicated things. And, and even back then, um, you know, there was this question, the, the D in, in DeFi, and I had written, this is February 2020. Um, critics say a DeFi platform, which can be paused by its management team at will, isn't decentralized at all. Uh, so uh, Charlie Lee said most DeFi can be shut down by a centralized party, so it's just decentralization theater. So it looks like we haven't come <laughs> that far in three years. <laughs> Still here. And that that isn't even the hack that's being discussed in this lawsuit right that hack yeah. happened in 2020 and then the exactly. one the big one the 55 million dollar one happened in 2021 and yeah. that's the one that people are suing over so and, yeah. and no that nothing changed just the rugs got bigger <laughs> exactly oh so crazy dcx just you know it just kept getting hacked um here's like no Hack number one, Valentine's Day exploit. Hack number two, Sunday Scaries exploit. Anyways. And what if it was a phishing exploit? Oh, my God. Uh, at least these ones here were, were somewhat sophisticated. You know, they involved this, <laughs> you know, flash loans. And... Anyways, um, so here's uh, another DAO, um, MakerDAO, trying to become <clears throat> more, <clears throat> sorry, uh, censorship resistant. Um, so they are, uh, they, they've been pushing to become more and more decentralized. So uh, I think it was last year they dissolved the Maker Foundation, which was a Switzerland-based foundation a la Ethereum. Um, and now they are trying to decentralize the collateral that is backing DAI. Uh, so this, this is a proposal that uh, passed to ratify a new constitution, um, which was proposed by Rune Christensen, the MakerDAO founder last year. It's called the Endgame Plan. Uh, and, and the idea is to uh, become resilient 
uh, against any kind of government, uh, regulatory, uh, or otherwise, you know, attack. Um, and so, yeah, what's kind of behind this plan at the core is that right now, uh, or or I should say in the past several months, maker maker strategy has been to increase um, its to diversify collateral for DAI. So it had been accepting uh, real world assets uh, to back DAI. Uh, there was uh, this like big push towards real world assets, and <clears throat> that's because the way that DAI, the stablecoin, can scale is by allowing um, uh, you know collateral that that can uh, that that can grow. If if you're just using ETH as collateral, then you're limited by ETH market cap uh, to you know how uh, how how large the stablecoin can get, um, and actually less than ETH market cap because this is over collateralized. So th there is kind of a cap on how big Dai can get if it just relies on on ETH and uh, other crypto. So that's why they had this push on diversifying collateral to uh, centralized stable coins and real world assets. It's how uh, a large chunk of DAI collateral became USDC. Um, but we saw the risk uh, of this, uh, you know, become very apparent in, you know, uh, two weeks ago when um, uh, three banks in the US went down uh, one of them was holding USDC collateral, USDC lost its peg. And so then DAI became just as risky or about as risky as USDC. So in a scenario where, you know, DAI, which was the original decentralized stablecoin, was supposed to or, or should have come out a winner, like people losing trust on centralized stablecoins, it went down, you know, just as much, uh, uh, you know, as, as USDC. Um, so anyway, so this endgame plan is a push to fix this and make more of DAI collateral uh, decentralized. So I, I think it's, you know, it's a pretty significant move. Um, it won't be, it, it won't be immediate. Like there, there are different steps uh, that maker has to take to do this. Um, but this is kind of the new direction of, uh, DeFi's second largest protocol by, by TVL. So I, I thought it was a super interesting development. Um, and it just on a personal note, I think it, it just makes sense for DAI to go back to its roots as, as an actual decentralized stable. Yeah, and it was like a personal battle too. I know like Rune, Rune was involved like pretty heavily in pushing pushing for it. And I think a lot right, of people and, were not happy with the direction. I'm, I'm not super up on the details, but yeah, exactly. That, that was, um, that was a bit controversial there because, uh, room controls a, a big chunk of, um, of maker tokens. And so he was pushing for this to happen. And there's also delegates that vote, you know, that, that hold a part of rune's tokens that vote, uh, however he votes. And uh, Sam uh, wrote the story, and and he he has here in the story that if it wasn't for Rune and his delegates, the end game plan like this new constitution wouldn't have been ratified. Um, so you know, speaking about kind of lack of decentralization, 
you know, that's that's a, a red flag. That was basically one one voter swaying yeah. uh, the entire vote. Yeah, I think Dai is ha <clears throat> has kind of, um, I mean, no one knows what Dai's kind of mission is anymore. You know, it's no longer, it, you can't call it a purely crypto native stablecoin anymore, right? Because we've seen with the DPEG and USDC making up such a big uh, portion of collateral. When it started out, you know, it was the lending protocol, but now yeah. others have come in and, you know, innovated come up with different models liquidity for example sticking with the pure eth um thing which is i mean in terms of the current headlines yeah it's a great uh move and you know they've seen a boost but is it scalable that's again the question that they face right because right. that's why maker started this whole usdc uh, psm in the first place mm -hmm. yeah that's right yeah i mean that's a trade-off uh, it, it becomes less scalable if you you're limiting yourself to one type of collateral. Um, before we move to the next headline, which is uh, the uh, Ethereum um, upgrade, uh, I'd like to give another shout out to our sponsor Arch, uh, which allows you to borrow against uh, against crypto. Um, so. Yeah, uh, thanking thanking Arch uh, for sponsoring this uh, weekly recap. I think we will see a, a short uh, video on them. Seamless loans for alternative assets. Introducing Arch. Arch enables you to obtain a single loan collateralized by your combined crypto holdings, all held securely and untouched by the number one SEC-regulated crypto custodian, BitGo. Choose between loans denominated in fiat U.S. dollars or USDC stablecoins and experience the confidence and flexibility that Arch provides to alternative asset investors. Nice. Thank you, Arch, for sponsoring our weekly recap. Um, and now uh, let's turn our attention to Ethereum and how uh, ETH stakers will be able to withdraw their ETH in just two weeks. Uh, Owen, can you tell us more about this sure. development? Yeah, so this broke a couple days ago, and the high-level takeaway is that um, Ethereum, which has been staked and hence locked for a maximum of like two and a quarter years, uh, will will start to be able to be unlocked on April twelfth. And so, you know, as probably a lot of people watching know. Uh, the beacon chain was the, I believe it's the consensus layer um, for Ethereum's transition to proof of stake, um, which has been, uh, people have been staking Ethereum in starting, I think, in uh, late uh, December 2020. And basically, it's been a one-way uh, road where you deposit your Ether, you're getting a return, but you haven't been able to withdraw them. And so now we're finally seeing as, you know, Ethereum's kind of somewhat epic progression um you'll be able to unlock starting on april 12th um very big news uh i mean the, the big thing to know also is that the selling is progressive i think it's something on the order of like 200 or 2200 eth per day will be able to uh be unlocked so, so there's a there's a queue yeah there's a queue mm -hmm. um and 
yeah, so so that's that's important to know. So you're not going to get a huge amount of um, sell pressure if you think a lot of people are going to sell starting April 12th, but there will be a progressive um, increased amount of ETH sloshing around the crypto ecosystem starting the, on the 12th. So yes. Around the time of the merge, I remember reading that that queue, in the event everybody immediately tried to withdraw their stake that that queue would take more than a year to work through oh nice so yeah. um yeah not like it, it not much of a possibility of of like you know a couple billion dollars getting dumped onto the market all at once right um i don't know but what do you guys think do you think this will increase sell pressure on ETH, even if it's this kind of slow drip. But if you have just like constantly uh, stakers taking out their money, selling it, um, or or is staking ETH still a better alternative uh, yield-wise than uh, other you know other places out there? Like maybe maybe not uh, maybe it's not worth taking out your ETH. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, someone said, I think that you'll have, you know, diehard holders or, you know, supporters of ETH are going to be the ones who staked. I mean, not that's not obviously across the board, but like the, the composition of people who especially like natively staked in the withdrawal contract, like they themselves did it not through uh, a Lido or a rocket pool. Like they're not your average ETH holder per se looking to like flip on like a month or two timeline mm. so i mean that that should I, I mean that's definitely on the side of the factors of mitigating uh whether people are going to sell that right. said you know it's still 2000 ETH a day so yeah yeah i hope they sell <clears throat> and, buy lower? Uh, yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah we'll see what's the yield like right now I think it's about five yeah. percent. It's pretty decent. Yeah, and it's more if you go through um, uh, Lido or Rocket Pool, for example. Um, mm -hmm. The eight ETH mini pools, I think, yield close to um, maybe seven and a half, eight. Mm. So, is that because of the uh, the token incentives on top? I'm actually, I haven't dived into it uh, in detail, to be honest, sure, to figure sure. out where the extra yield comes from. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it looked attractive. I was thinking of setting one up just, you mm -hmm. know, to say, you know, I have a node. Yeah. 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 Savio said, uh, just there won't be much sell pressure on ETH. Uh, you wouldn't stake it otherwise. So yeah, I, I think there, there's definitely something to that. So, yeah, there's a yeah. more kind of ideological component. Yeah, if you're willing to bet on it. Yeah, and if you're going to bet on it for two years, like you're probably pretty hardcore anyway. So, yeah. I mean, at the time, we we didn't even know it was two years. It was just uh, sometime in the future, right? It was uh, uh, basically handing off your ETH and saying, "All right, you know, we just uh, yeah. we trust in the team and let's see what they do." Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. It was even a bigger leap of faith than than knowing it was going to happen at all. So, yeah, fair point. Sort of that, you know, the Ethereum devs keep delivering. Um, 
you know, they, they they may be late with a lot of it, but they they've actually pulled off uh, so many of the the things that the others said uh, weren't going to happen. So, you know, uh, all through this time, uh, there there was this kind of chorus of um, Bitcoiners or critics saying that that ETH was going to be locked there forever. Uh, but now, apparently, in two weeks, uh, you'll be able to withdraw it. Uh, same thing with like the actual transition to proof of stake. Uh, yeah. We reported how it went, you know, how it happened without any issues. So, I mean, this is, I think, another testament to Ethereum devs delivering, even if you know, not on in, in the most uh, timely manner, but they do deliver in the end, which is worth noting. Um, Okay, we we we're running out of time and we have a bunch of headlines to go through. So, uh, related to Ethereum, there were uh, lots of layer two related headlines, Owen, um, with like CK EVMs going live. Yeah, I, I can just uh, speed yeah. run. Um, so yeah, I mean we saw Polygon's zero knowledge rollup go live on mainnet on Monday and. As you know, anyone following crypto knows, the the push to develop uh, real zero knowledge rollups has been has been massive, and we saw zk sync go live on Friday. And the basic idea is that transactions will get cheaper and they'll get faster. And zero knowledge is kind of touted as even superior to optimistic rollups, which have currently dominated the. Ethereum scaling space. And in line with that, um, Consensus, which is a huge conglomerate uh, kind of built up around providing various products and services for Ethereum, also launched a zero knowledge EVM uh, or a test net for one this week. So that's part of a, a huge theme for the year, which has been this kind of ZK EVM rush which is which is very interesting and i think you know i'm working on a story now kind of develop delving into kind of what what this is about and what i mean i'm curious what investors are chasing and how it's going to manifest um or you know what 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 are they betting on and why are there so many providers you know you could arguably say there's kind of a race to zero if everyone is developing a zero knowledge uh roll up i don't know where where does the money come from exactly Probably not a discussion for today, but um, yeah, yeah. Watch that story. We'll be yeah, yeah, soon. it's it's a tough one. So yeah. yeah. And then another good story that uh, you did is you know this um, Arbitrum airdrop helping a smaller DAO survive the bear market. Uh, so yeah, if you want to just give the, the gist of that story, I thought it was really interesting. Sure. So. You know, high level, as we all know, Arbitrum uh, dished out a bunch of responsibility to everyone, um, I guess, two weeks ago um, in the form of tokens, governance tokens. Um, and that was uh, $1.3 billion of a $10 billion supply um, uh, was dropped across the community. And of that $1.3 billion, 8.9 were gifted to 137 DAOs. And so that was kind of a big deal because typically you'll see airdrops have just gone to individual people and they sell or try to make yield or LP or whatever. But, um, you know, basically now all these, these, these DAOs have, um, 
I, I think what what is it like? Yeah, it's like over 150 million spread across them. So they're basically I was kind of exploring what does this mean and what are they deciding to do and how kind of looking into their discords and seeing what their decision process is and everyone's saying just just give it to the community and airdrop it and and then also like yeah you'll see smaller companies and and you know i realized we went through kind of the top 10 and you realize that this company cap finance which i, I think does perpetual futures like they tripled their treasury off this airdrop um so it, it's kind of um, it's just an exciting space to watch in terms of um, like, I, I don't know, you, you know, you have all these DAOs, all these decisions don't matter, but like you give them a chunk of money and suddenly everyone starts paying attention. And it's there's just a lot of activity around all these governance decisions and like should you use it for liquidity mining or, you know, should you I mean, some debate just like should you just sell it for stable coins because uh, you know, that's more stable than, than ARB. Should you try to become like a key governance player in the Arbitrum ecosystem? Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's very interesting to kind of see these debates live. And that is an exciting thing about crypto is that you kind of can just hop in a discord and you can see everyone, you know, being various degrees of thoughtful or not about like this, you know, million dollar windfall, a potentially small organization received. So, yeah. No, super interesting. And also, you know, about interesting about crypto is that you get these scenarios where you you literally see kind of free money falling from the sky and it's not pennies, you know, it's like millions, several millions of dollars in, in some cases. Uh, in some cases, you know, you, uh, more money than the project even had uh, to yeah. begin with. Just, yeah. you know, they're they're getting it um, for free or, or actually in exchange for building and participating in the Arbitrum ecosystem. So yeah. just, uh, you know, a really fascinating mechanics happening in, in crypto with uh, with airdrops as, as, a, as a way to incentivize and reward uh, users. Yeah. So uh, another interesting story we had is Kava. So here's a bit of alpha for, for those listening. Um, Alex spotted this uh, really uh, quickly rising uh, blockchain. Kava, you want to give a, a quick uh, rundown of, of this one? Yeah, so Kava has been around for for a little while. It's not like, um, I think it was the beginning of the year that we were looking at Kanto, which was a relatively new blockchain that was uh, taking off. You know, it's TVL was just going up and up and up. It's since kind of come back down to earth. But Kava has been around for a while, but over the past month, uh, the amount of crypto deposited in Kava has gone up by like 80%. Um, so Kava's on fire right now. And the reason is that there's there's a new lending protocol on Kava and it's built by the same team that built the top lending protocol on Optimism, Zona Finance. They just forked Zona and put it on Kava and money is just pouring in to this new lending protocol, Mare. Um, I think Mare's TBL is at like $130 million, which accounts for, I think, over the month of March, Kava's TBL has gone up by about 150. So that's 130 out of $150 million growth there is all because of Mare. And uh, what's interesting is that it's not just about that one 
protocol. It's the 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 Zona playbook on optimism. Uh, Zona doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's actually tightly integrated with the number one protocol there, Velodrome. That's a, a, a decentralized exchange that uses a particular model that was popular, not popularized necessarily, but that was first cooked up by infamous developer, DeFi developer, Andre uh, Kronia. Um, and that particular model, uh, the integration between the lending protocol and this DEX can create a kind of flywheel effect that Zona used to great advantage over the past couple of months on optimism. And that same exact playbook is being replayed here. Um, something that I'll be keeping an eye out for is kind of how long the party can keep going, right? Because it's, I mean, this breakneck growth is probably going to slow down at some point. Um, but but it's been a great month for for, for Kava. I mean, it, it flipped Solana. It's now, if I recall, the 11th largest block train measured by, by TVL. Um, it, it surpassed Solana like two weeks ago. So. Right yeah, crazy how like you know one one project can make make or break these these blockchains these like smaller uh, blockchains and how quickly kind of the after the the top five I guess uh, the, the rankings can can change um, and I think it just speaks to kind of this game of musical chairs that DJs play <laughs> they just go yeah. you know liquidity liquidity just moves from from one place to to the next chasing yield. Um, and I think, you know, that that ties well into uh, this other kind of similar kind of story of, uh, of just like a, a quickly rising uh, project, uh, Trader Joe, um, Owen did uh, this one. I'll, I think I'll, I'll just run through the, 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 the last headlines that we have since we're over time. Um, but uh, Trader Joe is uh, the fastest growing major DEX uh, this year uh, after implementing a Uniswap V3-like model. So this, this model of having uh, concentrated liquidity in bands uh, of prices, they implemented it and it looks like it's uh, driving uh, trading, uh, but still not close to the, the highs that it had uh, in trading last year. Uh, but still, this uh, increase in trading is making it uh, grow faster than other large um, uh, DEXs. Uh, then we had the Euler hacker continue to return funds uh, in the NFT space. Um, Disney is uh, another big Web2 company shutting down its metaverse division. Uh, we had uh, Instagram say they're, they're dumping NFTs. Disney is doing that as well. Um, but, uh, you know, NFT space isn't dead. And we had this Wasis project um, launch a pop-up hotel, uh, which is, you know, pretty crazy. You don't see NFTs do that uh, every day. Um, then uh, Teller, uh, Teller V2 is offering fixed-term loans, um, which is interesting in this volatile space to get anything fixed-term. Um, against uh, crypto uh, and then finally Ave is launching on polygon ck evm 
So those are the major stories that we covered uh, this week. Uh, as always, lots going on. Um, We're providing uh, you the, the best and deepest coverage in DeFi and Web3. So um, stick around for uh, next week and see what uh, our headlines will be. I don't know, guys, if I'm uh, missing anything um, that you wanted to add or, or we can wrap up. Uh, I would just say the Trader Joe people were very specific that they that the bins that their liquidity model is about they further divide liquidity into bins rather than the kind of these continuous bands of liquidity which they argue and I tend to agree bring some advantages so just shout okay, out okay. shout out to those guys you know they they, they, right. they were just trying to say they're not just Uniswap B3 they're, they're not you know, they're they not, didn't they're like just that. copying like Uniswap yeah, B3 yeah. all right okay <laughs> sorry Trader Joe uh, beans and not bands <laughs> okay all right um cool uh, I think we can wrap up thank you so much uh, everyone who joined and uh, catch us next week all right bye